Welcome to the inaugural episode of Errors of Continuity, presented by the SLS Cast. Errors of Continuity is a podcast geared toward the film industry, driven by in-depth discussion on topics about filmmakers and the movies they make. We're kicking things off with a two-parter in which we will be discussing Stig Larsson's Millennium Trilogy in both book and screen forms, including David Fincher's 2011 remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and the two books not written by Stig Larsson, released to much controversy, The Girl in the Spider's Web, which came out in 2015, and The Girl Who Takes an Eye for an Eye, which will be released September 2017. Today's episode will be about the first two parts of the Millennium miniseries, being the entire The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo story starring Numi Rapace and Michael Nickfist, and David Fincher's much darker and grittier 2011 remake starring Rooney Mara and Daniel Craig. Now that we got that out of the way, welcome cinephiles, and we hope you enjoy the show. Your Errors of Continuity hosts are Matt and Tim from the SLS cast. I am Tim. And this is Matt. Joining the conversation today from the Great White North and the Johnny White Trash Show podcast is BDSM historian and body sweat enthusiast, Johnny White Trash. How are you doing, Johnny? See, I jumped in too soon already. I've ruined the whole podcast. My apologies. But yes, (laughs) thank you, Johnny White Trash. Hi, folks. JohnnyWhiteTrash.com, White Trash Show on all social medias. There, that's out of the way. Let's have a real good show. <laughs> well, welcome. I'm, I'm glad you were able to wake up early. Uh, I, actually, I don't know what time it is in Canada right now. Depends on what part of Canada you're in. But right now, for me, it is 10.30. 10.30. Okay, well, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. Um, but before we begin, I must first note that we are not covering the theatrical release of the three Swedish flicks, but instead we'll cover the 2010 extended TV versions originally released on premium pay French TV as a miniseries in six parts with each film presented as two 90-minute episodes. Today we'll be talking about the first two parts of the miniseries, being the entire The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo story. You can find the extended miniseries on Netflix, if you are in the U.S., where it's called Dragon Tattoo Trilogy Extended Edition. You can also find the extended editions on Blu-ray as well. I hope you got all that, because that's a lot of retitling. Once we get into the books, you'll quickly realize that it wasn't even called The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, or The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest, but they had their own little Swedish versions on that as well. Even apart from the actual Swedish versions, the translations are quite different. But I must ask, to begin, Matt and Johnny, what drew the both of you to Stig Larsson's Millennium Trilogy? Why are you fans? For me, honestly, it was something that I had recently heard of. Uh, it kind of goes to the history of the SLS cast, really. We we had, at the time, we were actually trying to put the SLS cast together. And this is, you know, 2011 and everything. And so we were looking at something that we could do to rehearse. And the books had, had really been increasing in popularity. The books, of course, had transferred over in, like, 2008, to the States. And so there was word that there was a movie going to be coming or something. But then of course we had discovered that there was already a trilogy that had been released. And I thought it would be interesting to do kind of like a pre-show, if you will. And so as we've mentioned before on the SLS cast proper, that was kind of our dress rehearsal to go over these movies and, and really kind of talk about them and, and just, you know, work together and kind of put a flow. And it was through that process that I uh, discovered. I had uh, my wife sat down, and we actually watched them together. And that was when we kind of became fans, or at least for myself, I became a fan. I, I, I had never read the books, so. For me, what happened was, I forget what show it was. It would have been, like, maybe a G4 TV or something. But basically... um the No by Rooster Teeth, whatever that was on TV back in the day, less than 10 years ago, I guess it's not really back in the day, but I just heard them talk about, you know, there's a, a trailer for a Swedish movie based on this popular book, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, about a hacker girl or something like that. I just remember, I'm like, huh, 
that sounds kind of cool. And then I just saw the uh, DVDs in Walmart one day and uh, for a decent price, picked them up and then just fell in love with the series and then read the books and then got the audio books. And then I fell in love with this series hard. It's a, it's a really good read, but initially it was just some weird 45 second spot on a TV show was my first memory of hearing of this. So was this like back in 2009 or, or actually the first movie came out in the U S in 2010. So was it 2010 or 2011 would have been somewhere around there. I know I was reading the second book when I was reading the second book, I was waiting for the third one to come out or the third one came out in hardcover. Just that's my only real time frame reference I have is the, the third one hadn't come out in paperback yet. If that helps at all. Not really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever you first saw the movies, did you watch it? Cause you were talking earlier about uh, the English dub, right? Did you watch it with English dubs or did you watch it with subtitles? It started off with subtitles and I went into the DVD menu and saw that they had dubs, English dubs. I've never watched the original trilogy in Swedish. So when I found out that my DVDs were missing, because, I mean, DVDs, right? Who the hell has those? Yeah, when I went looking, I just couldn't believe that I apparently at one point owned this very rare English dubbed version. Now, it wasn't the extended, though. I'm I'm fairly sure it wasn't the extended versions, but it did come in a nice box, so there was that. I'm trying to track down this series again to give it a good watch good proper watch but the english dubs the one thing i got to give them over some of the other dubs i've seen is like there are certain words that line up like character names places you know like words that are universal we'll say and the dubs had all those words lined up so every now and then if you kind of you know squinted or took your contacts out it looked like the actors were actually saying the english words even though clearly they weren't because the whole thing was in swedish also just to be nitpicky here, the one thing that blew my mind when I listened to the audiobooks is I didn't know that Sweden had the same VW thing as Germany. So it's not Bloomquist, it's or it's not Bloomquist, it's a W sound, not a V sound and stuff like that. Like, you know, just just the little things about this series, you know what I mean? So it's Bloomquist, like qu- like Quisp? Yeah. Bloomquisp. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. Even the actor who plays him, Nye. Quist, it's a W sound. And yeah, like this whole thing, it's weird listening to uh, them talk about the Wanger Corporation when I read it as Wanger the whole time. Like, Just a, a little thing in the book doesn't really make a big difference, but, <laughs> you know, it, it's just one of those. That's my movie hipster moment there. Actually, it's pronounced Wanger. <laughs> it is less threatening when it's Wanger Corporation, right? True that. Moving on to a little bit of background to set up more background, Stig Larsson had finished writing the first two books of the Millennium Trilogy and most of the third book before initially submitting those books to the publishers in Sweden. A publisher for Expo, which was the magazine for the Swedish Expo Foundation, both founded by Larsson to, quote, counteract the growth of the extreme right in the white power culture in schools and among young people, end quote. That publisher had recommended Larson to the publishing company Nordstex Forlag. I'm pretty bad at pronouncing <laughs> most things in a foreign language, but definitely Swedish. It's a N-O-R-S-T-E-D-T-S-F-O-R-L-A-G, Nordstets Forlag. And they would release the first trilogy in Sweden. Men Who Hate Women came out in August 2005, The Girl Who Played With Fire in June 2006, and The Air Castle That Was Blown Up in May 2007. The English versions were released as The Girl With The Dragon Tattoo in January 2008, The Girl Who Played With Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked The Hornet's Nest both came out in 2009. Larson had begun writing these books in the summer of 2002 and would die suddenly from a heart attack on November 9th, 2004, just nine months before the Swedish publication of the first book, and three years and six months before the release of the first movie. The characters of Mikkel Blomkist and Lisbeth Salander became favorites amongst readers and are immediately thought of when thinking of an influential fictional duo. 
When I hear Salander, I immediately think of an antisocial young independent woman in her mid-twenties wearing tight black clothes, piercings, and metal jewelry, living in a dark and secretive past. But she's smart, and with a photographic memory. And when I hear of Bloomquist, I think of Stig Larsson's own alter ego, a man dedicated to exposing fascism and publishing the truths, despite the mainstream media and government trying to suppress them. Over the course of the three books, Mikkel Bloomquist and Elizabeth Salander work well, almost independently, or mostly independently, on solving a series of complex political and financial crimes, ranging from corporation and drug dealing to torture and sex slavery. Each of these stories are textured with many important characters, locations, and storylines, requiring the reader's or viewer's full undivided attention. Many of these stories were pulled from Stig Larsson's past and personal experiences while working with and creating various far-left, anti-fascist, and Marxist organizations and publications. With these books, he set out to, quote, shine a spotlight on the ills and realities of a rigid society, end quote, and he uses violence and the depictions of rape and hatreds towards women in his books to show that, quote, the world is stacked up against women, and the only opportunity Salander and other female characters have is to fight like hell against the attackers, end quote. And Stig Larsson's background is absolutely fascinating, and there's definitely more to it. But Matt, do you have any more you'd like to mention regarding <laughs> Stig Larsson? Sure. I am uh, of the opinion that he is definitely kind of an interesting guy, to say the least. But... I mean, I guess from a, just a purely biographical standpoint or what have you, born back in 1954, his early life was really something that kind of shaped the way that the books and ultimately the movies would be presented. He was separated from his parents very, very early on and lived with his grandparents out in a small, very small village out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, think... Think the old-style Nordic, you know, the old Nordic track commercials from the 90s, right? When they would show you where the Nordic track came from. Homeboy used to literally cross-country ski to school when he was old enough to do so. Being separated from his parents, and not because of anything that anybody did wrong or anything like that. It was literally just a financial situation and, and, and space consideration. So his parents would come to visit and everything, and he, he knew his parents and everything, uh, and even had a brother, and they would play together when they were young and stuff. But he was isolated a lot, and so he turned to reading, turned to fiction and mysteries. And the setting, the, the northern setting, the Swedish mountain-esque setting of Dragon Tattoo is from that time in his life when he was, you know, when he lived in an area that was as pretty as a postcard growing up. He started writing when he was very young. Given the talent that his parents saw in him, he was actually given a typewriter for his 12th birthday. So this is a guy who was shaped to write from a young age. And yet what's interesting is that as he grew into adulthood, he never really got beyond the potential stage. And while, I mean, ultimately he has been proved successful as far as this particular trilogy is concerned, a lot of what grew into the trilogy, or just even into the first book, if you will, came from his romanticizing and projecting his own ideas of what he thought he should be. This is a guy that struggled. He worked basically for the Swedish version of the Associated Press. And in the course of 20 years, really only had like 25, I want to say it was about 25 articles that he wrote that were of any considerable depth. Okay, I mean, he did lots of work. I mean, it wasn't just, he wasn't a bad employee. He was a crusader for all things left, politically speaking. And not to confuse the American left and right with Swedish left and right, there are some similarities, but for them, the far right is literally neo-Nazi. So, I mean, he was always a crusader for 
fighting for freedom and democracy and things of that nature. But while he was a crusader for that, he was not exactly successful. And so when this, all of these things translate into his books, all of a sudden Blumkist is this successful writer with a, with 21,000 copies, you know, weekly going out. And he's, you know, not necessarily that he's good looking or anything, but I mean, he's, almost this personification of everything Larson wanted to be professionally. Um, he turned to the books nearly out of desperation. This guy never had more than a thousand you know, subscribers ever in the history of his magazine in real life, and yet the magazine is successful here. But the magazines do the same thing. And this goes more, I think, to a writer must write of which he knows more along the lines of literally Larson kind of fantasizing what he wanted to become. He never made any bones about what he was doing with these books. These books were his, you know, quote unquote retirement plan. It was there so that he would have something to fall back on so that he could fund his magazine that, while important in what it was trying to accomplish, and definitely important for furthering idealistic teenagers, they were literally teenagers. And when you balance this stuff, honestly, I'm more interested in this stuff now based on his failures in life that led him to write these books, which were only, in the ultimate irony, were only... It published after his death. Now, he did get the book deal before he died, but there was still no guarantee that these things were going to sell. To give you, I mean, a, a really good encapsulation of the idea, the myth, the legend, and the reality that is Stig Larsson is one of the, I, one of these ideas that are put forward that is kind of the genesis of the Salander character. When Larsson was young, he saw some of his friends, I don't know why he would say the word friends, uh, but he saw some of his friends gang-raping this girl, and he did nothing to stop it. And he went and, you know, asked this girl to forgive him, and she said no. And this girl was supposedly named Lisbeth. That story was later, shall we say, downplayed by Larson, and then later also attributed to being nothing more than fiction in and of itself. And yet all of these later attributions that downgraded and were all after his death. So you can kind of see just exactly how much is wrapped up in Larson, which here we are talking about him 13 years after he died, so he must have done something right. I don't know. I hope I'm not just rambling down you know, some path here and Guys, feel free to jump in. But, I mean, I no, really no. think that uh, it's kind of fascinating to watch a guy who struggled his whole life, who had all this potential, and never got to see it fully realized. I want to definitely come back to it and touch on it later, but I don't know, I mean, how much, how successful would he have really been had he lived? And it's also pretty interesting because there's even people that say that he didn't even write the Millennium Trilogy himself. Like, after he passed away, the publisher could have taken it and had somebody go and... I guess, ghostwrite or polish the book up. But Stig Larsson was a guy who basically grew up in the forest, kind of surrounded by all this eerie isolation. It's very fascinating. And I believe, Matt, I was kind of reading from the same articles that you were, and I came across this Rolling Stone article where it said that as a boy, and I'm going to quote this article, it's from 2010 in the magazine, but it was republished online in 2011. It's available now, so you can go look it up. But it says, like, as a boy, Stig lived in his grandparents' cottage in the woods. At the time, an old Swedish law was still in effect that barred children from attending school until they were seven. Written a century earlier, the law was intended to protect little boys and girls from being devoured by wolves while they were walking through the forest on the way to school. I guess growing up in Sweden... One of the things that he wanted to bring to the forefront was that oftentimes when, when people think of Sweden, especially outsiders, we think of this fairy tale place. Every town in Sweden is this fairy tale cottage area where everybody's happy, the air is fresh and clean, everybody is 
pleased to see one another. Everybody's cooking. Everybody's having a good time. Yada, 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 yada. Just the fairy tale train of thought. But with these stories, he really wanted to bring to the forefront that there was this underground scariness in the form of far-right fascism and and neo-Nazism, that there were a string of murders from the far right that were carried out on the suppressors. And it's just very entertaining and, and absolutely fascinating. Moving on to the first book and the first movie, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, that's the U.S. release title. The book came out in Sweden in August of 2005. Its U.S. release was January of 2008. Movie release in Sweden was February 27th, 2009, and its U.S. release was March 19th, 2010. Part one of the miniseries was released on that French pay TV channel, I forget what it was, on uh, March 20th of 2010, and then part two came out the following week on March 27th of 2010. It was directed by Niels Arden Oplev, screenplay written by Nicola Arcel and Rasmus Heisterberg. It stars Michael Nequist. Yeah, I was trying to make sure I said it right, since uh, Johnny knows the correct <laughs> pronoun. Like, so I'm doing this weird, like, stopping just to make sure, but I, I think I kind of said it. Michael Nequist and Numi Rapace. With a budget of $13 million, it reached a worldwide gross of well over $104 million. In the U.S., it garnered more than $10 million during its limited release in only just 202 theaters. Again, that was in the U.S. So the first one, I will say, did much better than the two Swedish sequels that came out after. Matt, would you like to give a little brief synopsis? I guess... Theoretically, they're both the same. The synopsis for both. <laughs> All right. So Michael Bloomquist is a uh, or Bloomquist, depending on where you're at. Bloomquist, whatever <laughs> the fuck you want to say. <laughs> Michael Bloomquist is a Swedish publisher. Works at a magazine called Millennium. He has just lost a liable case uh, against a wealthy billionaire, uh, right? Because billionaires aren't wealthy. Uh, whatever. Uh, business uh, wealthy business magnate and. He has been given a three-month suspended sentence. During this time, you know, he can't be working, can't do anything. But another industrialist guy comes up and says, Listen, I've got evidence you need on Homeboy that will what, what's the, vindicate you and everything that you've gone through. And I will give you this information if you will do something for me. And so Michael's like, What you need? He's like, I need you to investigate the disappearance of his sister. I can't remember. Sister, granddaughter, daughter. I can't remember. Grandniece. Yeah, yeah, it was a niece. Yeah, he's like, all right, sure. So to do this, he has to go out to the country estate, uh, the manor house in the mountainous back country of Sweden. And parallel to this, we have Lisbeth Sander. I'm sorry, Lisbeth Salander, who is a girl who is very troubled she's tough she's gothic in nature punk uh and what have you and she is having her own issues trying to basically just exist due to having been found mentally incompetent when she was younger and so she is under basically uh, a social worker's care her situation is not the best but Certainly not the worst, all things considered. And uh, she has a good social worker. Unfortunately for her, her social worker has uh, a stroke and is now taken out of the picture. And so her new social worker is nowhere near as nice. Shenanigans ensue. And then, of course, both of their paths, Michael and Lisbeth, their paths cross as a, as a result of the circumstances individual to their lives that go into this case and it uncovers much much more than would have been done uh basically a serial killer and that is the movie and the book and johnny since you are the only one who read the book and watched the movie what are some of the differences between the movie and the book are there many differences at least with the uh the original swedish film not how do I put this? Yes, but most of it's time constraint. Like like both movies kind of had this whole 
oh, we're here already? Oh, we're here already? The book is, it's very big. It's very, I'm not going to use the word slow, but like there'll be like a 20 page chapter that covers like a day sometimes. And sometimes there'll be a 20 page chapter that covers three months. But the, the biggest plot difference I would say would probably be Anita and Harriet. The two sisters. No, aunt. Or or their cousins. No, uh, Anita's, uh, Anita is Harriet's aunt. Oh. I, I think that relationship's different in the book. I don't know why I bothered making my plot a synopsis spoiler free. We are way <laughs> going into spoiler territory with this. Yeah, basically, yeah. Anita is the one who helps Harriet escape. And Anita is Harriet's aunt. Yes. And Harriet takes over Anita's identity after Anita dies. That's the big difference. Oh, so that's what happened. Yeah. yeah I'm kidding. <laughs> Wouldn't that suck? In the book, okay, like when um, Martin gets run off the road by Salander, which is kind of different in the movies, but like in the books, it's her chasing him with the, the motorcycle because he, you know, he got got right. And, you know, as he's trying to pay attention behind him, that's when he runs into the truck, which I think in both movies is slightly different, but the key plot point is Martin Vanger died. Right. Right. That happens three quarters of the way through the book because The book focuses more on Miguel finding Harriet. And like, that's kind of the full plot arc. And believe it or not, this Martin Vanger thing is kind of a B plot in the book. Which it seems like they they follow that same path in the original Swedish, at least in the the miniseries. Like, they don't focus so heavily, at least the plot doesn't focus so heavily on Martin and the case. Like, they spend a lot more time building up Mikkel's and Lisbeth's relationship, which is why personally I thoroughly enjoyed going back and rewatching the original Swedish flicks, especially the extended editions, because it felt more like we got more of the characters in these presentations compared to right. the two and a half hour version and more so compared to the David Fincher remake. Right. My perfect way to watch this story, like if I was going to watch it, like if, if somebody announces that, they're making like an HBO series, you know, and the first book is like a 12 hour season. There's enough in the book to cover that. And, and like a lot of it is just, you know, more details, but other parts are like that investigation into the whole Vanger family. Those people are sick, not just Martin. Well, because most of them are Nazis or Nazi sympathizers. Well, yeah. Right. Like, like this is a country that, legit practice eugenics you know if your face wasn't perfectly symmetrical you were sterilized like this this country did that you know (laughs) and i just got to throw back to the beginning when matt said literal nazis no not not the people that you know are being called nazis in the news right now actual nazis and they they play up on that a bit again it it's not really that uh, okay let's come back to the harriet thing sorry I, I i know i'm jumping here but The one thing that threw me off about both the movies is what they went through after they killed Martin to find Harriet. You know what I mean? Because they went to London with where Anita was. They set up a hack, right? Mm -hmm. And that was the first time Miguel went to London to see Anita. And then right after Anita phoned Harriet, who was in Australia, I think living as Harriet, you know what I mean? Like she, she ran a sheep farm or well, sheep station, I guess they uh, refer to them in Australia. And she even took some convincing to come home. Right. But her whole, the whole thing, like uh, the whole reason she sent the pictures was, you know, I thought you'd know I was alive and yada, yada, yada. And I know I'm just kind of brushing over the details, but like I said, like the, the last quarter of the book is dedicated pretty much to finding Harriet and screwing over, um, Vennerstorm. Is that the guy who... The W guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wasser, Wasser Steiner something. Wennerstrom. Weinerstrom. Well, since we're, we're touching into or going into comparing the remake to the original territory, because I was looking through my notes and I realized most of the stuff I wrote down was comparing a lot of the details from the first movie to the remake and the remake to the first one. But the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo remake, directed by David Fincher... 
came out on December 21st, 2011, so a few years after the original Swedish movie. Screenplay was written by Steven Zalian, stars Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara. Daniel Craig is Mikkel and Rooney Mara is Salander. The budget for this movie was $90 million, and it reached a worldwide gross of $232.5 million, but in U.S. it just took in $102.5 million, which is why we haven't had a sequel yet, a U.S. sequel yet. So a little bit of background real quick regarding the Sony remake. Sony began putting together their Dragon Tattoo remake around the summer of 2009, and by December of 2009, they secured the rights to make a new English-language version. Steven Zalian just finished writing Moneyball, so he was brought on to adapt the screenplay. In March 2010, Sony reached out to David Fincher, who at the time just finished shooting The Social Network to direct. Fincher, along with producing partner Sean Chaffin and screenwriter Zalian, they managed to cut 350 pages of Larson's book to focus on the story of Bloomkist and Salander. And it took two and a half months of research for an actress to take on the role of Elizabeth Salander. Well, it didn't take two and a half months of research. It just took a two and a half month search for an actress to take on the role of Elizabeth Salander before settling on Rooney Mara. But Daniel Craig was quickly secured to play Bloomkist. Fincher had cast Rooney Mara in a bit part in The Social Network, where she played a very feminine and warm character to offset Jesse Eisenberg's very cold chameleon-like portrayal of Mark Zuckerberg. At first, Fincher didn't think Mara could be convincing as the non-feminine, antisocial, and deeply troubled Salander. Other actresses such as Mia Wasikowska and Ellen Page and Emily Browning were reported to be up for the role of Elizabeth. But it ultimately went to Mara, who convinced Fincher in the studio that she could pull it off. Production began in September 2010. They shot in Sweden, in Switzerland, Norway, UK, and on various sound stages in Los Angeles. Principal photography wrapped in June 2011, and the film was first screened in November of 2011 and then released in December. And considering that timetable and how big of a movie this film was, that's really not that bad timing. I mean, they really kind of put this movie together pretty quick. And it's amazing how, I mean, good the movie is. I mean, it's a, it's a well-made, well-thought-out, and well-produced script. It was nominated for five Oscars and took home one for editing. Around the time when this movie came out in December of 2011, there were over 62 million copies of the Millennium Trilogy in print. And the three Swedish movies grossed $215 million worldwide. A couple things I noticed when revisiting these flicks and watching the original and the remake back-to-back, -back, I kind of noticed a lot of interesting character and story differences. For example, in the original Swedish version, it turns out Bloomkist knew Harriet when he was a child. Harriet used to be his babysitter when he was a kid. So unlike the remake, where Fincher adds all these flashbacks to take you back to the last dinner, to the part the family gathering right before Harriet disappeared, and it takes you back to that parade in the town where, you know, the mystery is who is Harriet scared of in the picture, and they're trying to figure out who the person is who's on the other side of the street because the picture's too blurry. That's kind of what tacks onto the mystery. But what I thought was very interesting, again, was that Bloomkiss had a personal attachment to Harriet. And in some way, that was driving him trying to figure out who killed this woman, who he remembers fondly. And that makes a little bit more sense to me. Like, he is kind of obsessed with it because he does have that personal connection. I was just curious, what did you guys think of it? Like, I don't know if that was in the book or not. It sure as shit isn't in the remake. That's what I was going to jump in with. In the book, it's kind of halfway in between those. Uh, Harriet used to babysit him when he was a child, but he doesn't remember her at all in the books is how they, they went with that. Oh, really? So is, is there like a narration in the books where the narrator tells you that she was his babysitter? Uh, no, that in the books, it comes up during the first meeting. That's one of the things Henrik tries to use to entice him uh, Miguel into doing the investigation in the first place. 
Interesting. Says, you remember her? She babysat you. Remember? See? Well, did she have like that necklace thing that he kept remembering at all? No. 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 Necklace was not in the books. But that is pretty interesting, though. Like, to me at least, it seemed like the liberties they took for the Swedish movies, they were still acknowledging the books and building off the mythology of the book. And the little character and story elements that they added works because it still fits within the realm of of the books. Matt, was there anything you noticed that you thought was interesting or different than, I guess, what you ended up seeing in the remake? Well, the remake, okay, it's interesting because I kind of have... I'd never really watched the remake until this. So, I mean, you know, jumping on board six years late. But I think Sony miscalculated the value of the Swedish films when they did the remake. We had kind of hit this kind of weird cultural milestone where people were really willing to look into other people's cinema, other countries' cinema. And this was also at a time when... BBC programs were really starting to filter into the United States. The BBC channel and cable was getting really big. Doctor Who was all over the place. Uh, Stephen Fry is on PBS now. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff. So the, the, we're getting kind of this flood of European culture. We're also three years on the backs of the books that had come out in the United States, which is an incredible, incredibly fast time to go from book to movie in that day and age. I know that there are certain things that are written in mind for the screen now, but back, I mean, just even six years ago, uh, that was relatively unheard of to have a book to movie adaptation so quickly. And yet, it was also because of that people were like, oh, wow, wait a minute. I just read these fantastic books and there's already a movie for it. And the the same people who were reading the books are people overall more inclined to, to at least try and put up with a subtitled movie. And then, of course, as Johnny pointed out, there is even a dubbed version. So you have this movie that comes out that is slickly made as an American product. And honestly, if no one had ever read the books and no one had ever seen the movies, I think Dragon Tattoo Remake is is very good. On its own, as an individual movie that launches a story, it is it is good. The problem is, is it was a little... It was... It doesn't quite undermine itself against the Swedish... Against the earliest Swedish stuff, but... The Swedish stuff was good enough on its own that it didn't really need this remake, which I think is ultimately going to go into, when we get there, why they're just jumping to the fourth book to kind of start over again. The movie is definitely, I would say that the 2011 version is tighter, but the 2011 version also benefits from not being pared down. As we know, the original theatrical release that you and I covered back in 2011 is pared down from three hours. They put it from three hours down to like uh, to basically two. So I mean, they're cutting out an, over an hour's worth of content, and it makes the miniseries that we watched, the, the the extended edition, much much more faithful to the books, which is great. Also covering the B plots and stuff like Johnny had mentioned, but. It makes it, I don't know, it just kind of makes itself unnecessary. And that's kind of how I feel about it. As a standalone movie, it's good. But against the backdrop of the previous movies and the books themselves, I can see that the timing was just bad. I think, if nothing else, they should have waited another two or three years for all of the fanfare to have died down, if nothing else, than from the 2009 movies so that there was a renewed interest in people going to see it, because it just didn't make enough money, despite the Academy Award nominations, despite the good performances, despite the fact that it's slickly done, it was just too soon, and it was too easily identifiable against a really good foreign version. Don't you think it's a little too, it was maybe more too soon for the European audience who we're probably more inclined to watch the original Swedish movies because we all know that Sony made the movie because 
Americans like the book, but the majority of people that read the book in the U.S. didn't go see the original Swedish movie. Oh, and on top of it, the the movie didn't have to be ninety million dollars. Cost that much to make? I I agree with that too. Yeah, nothing in that story really warrants any kind of high budget release. Uh, well, I agree with that. Uh, but I on don't the think. same token, we're also dealing with the likes of Daniel Craig. David Fincher. I mean, you're you're attaching big names. Fair enough. Fair enough. To a project, and honestly, I think that hands down production. Simple. I mean, just hands down production values. There is a much better veneer to the 2011 movie than there is to the 2009 movie. Where I think totally, I, but I still maintain that even with the extended edition. And I gotta say. As much as I can appreciate what the extended editions have done, especially as we get into the next and into part two of the show here, into the next episode, I don't think it helped because really, yeah, because the movies, I, I, okay, you guys know me, I am always abhorrent of remakes nowadays because they just butcher the books and and and. We need more great television-style movies like Game of Thrones and stuff like that. So I was orgasmic that they have these extended editions that really go into and expand on the themes of the books and really put a lot more out there that was from the books into the trilogy. I think it's great. Really and truly, I do. But objectively speaking, the second and third movies kind of go off the beaten path a little bit and we can get into that in the next episode and that and that is true to the books true too. The, like th- and, this and first that's what i'm thinking story is kind of this standalone world building thing where all of a sudden once we once we get into the next chapter it's like hawkes fasten your seatbelts this shit goes deep but with this one the like this story in general uh uh the the girl with the dragon tattoo men who hate women you know like when you when you watch the movies it's almost like you know like an onion right like the outer shell is the american release you know if you've not seen anybody in this anything in this series or know anybody or know somebody who hasn't seen anything get them to start with this movie and if you like this movie then watch the swedish ones because it unpacks a little more you know you peel off another layer you get you know, another layer deep into the story. And then if you really like it, then go for the books where you just blow the whole story apart. Cause like, like the book, amazingly it's called girl with the dragon tattoo because Lisbeth Salander is not even really a main character. Like she's, she's in the book. Right. And, uh, towards the end, she, she helps and all of that, but it's, it really just, it doesn't really start telling her story till the next book. I do have to bring up one thing. This is arguably considered one of the most violent rape scenes, whether it's the book, the movies, the remake, or anything. And you summed it up at the beginning of the show with shenanigans ensue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Well, and, and that goes to show her character, too, is she is a, a one-woman army against the establishment. And, of course, we unpack that in the second and third uh, movies. And... This guy forces her to give him a blowjob because he is in control of her financial assets and she ran over her laptop or got run over in a car. I know the movies turned that into uh, a subway attack, but in the books, the subway attack was actually a previous thing that she got arrested for because she doesn't take shit. She fights back. And when she goes in front of authority figures, she clamps down because anything she says gets held against her and makes it worse. Like that, that part of her is illustrated in the books, not really unpacked. Like you don't know why you don't learn much about her motivations till later, but then to go to the guy's house and, you know, set up a hidden camera and I'm going to record you making me give you a blowjob for money. And he ties her down and chains her up. And, you know, again, right? The scene is brutal in the American version. It's more brutal in the Swedish version. And it's the one of the most brutal things I've ever read. It is one of the most brutal things I've ever read in, in the books. 
And listening to the audiobook makes you cringe even a little bit. So she goes in, she does that. There is one scene I thought was very, I thought was better in the, in the Swedish movie where it was showing her walking and how she was limping, couldn't walk. She had a dildo shoved up her ass and, and all of this, right? Sure, yeah. And in the second one, they, they did, or the second one, the remake, they did a good job too of showing like all the bruises, like this girl had just been through some shit, right? So then she goes back with the taser. She gets her revenge. Again, I thought the Swedish one showed her retaliation a little more brutal, it seemed. Ties the guy up, shoves something up his ass, makes him watch the the full 90-minute video at top volume while she waits in the other room smoking. And then tattoos on... And I think the tattoo changes depending on which version you're in. I think it's, I think in the books it was, I am a sadist... I'm a sadistic pig and a rapist or something. Yeah. And then yeah. in the, mar- but you get the idea. This guy is sporting a big belly tattoo with the words. I'm a rapist on it. Well, I think in the, in the Swedish movies, it's on his stomach. And then in the American remake, it's, it's on his chest. Right. Is that right, Matt? Well, yeah, on the American one, it's full. Upper yeah. Torso. It, yeah. It's, it, yeah. It's all on the stomach or above. I think stomach in the uh, Swedish one and then chest in the American for me, I thought it was kind of funny that his tattoo was bigger than the American one and her tattoo of the dragon was smaller in the American one. Cause in the book, it, the dragon tattoo is just a shoulder tattoo in the Swedish movies. It was like a full back piece, right? Which would have been a bitch to put on since that was all fake. Yeah. Just, just one of those little giggle points for me. Right. So that was a fake tattoo. So every time they had to show that tattoo, she would have to sit down and they would have to apply it on her. In the book, she had a wasp tattoo on her neck. And that's only relevant because it gets removed in later stories. Well, since you brought up probably the most controversial scene in the entire movie. Well, multiple scenes, I guess. So, Johnny, you say the book is more effective when it comes to that scene. And then, then you said it's the Swedish version and then the remake. That's the way I saw it. And what, what do you think, Matt? Between the remake and the Swedish movie. In terms of? The effectiveness of those scenes, as in character building for Elizabeth. All right, so I I, I looked at a couple of different uh, reviews and stuff, and Roger Ebert's, there, there was a one from Ebert's site and that I agree with. I think that overall the acting was stronger. That's not to say that Nick Vist and, not Mara, but Capace, are not as good or didn't get better or whatever. I think the acting overall was better in the remake, but I think that the emotional toll on all sides was better in the Swedish version. And something that was noted, there was a review done that compared the remake to the original. And they, one of the things that they touched on was, well, I don't get it. You know, I just never really could buy how Lisbeth and Michael could end up together. And in the Swedish version, it, you know, kind of frumpy, way too punk aesthetic, too goth aesthetic. And yet with the Fincher remake, you you can see it better. And I think that's, I think that's actually something that kind of goes to the problem with the remake was... Yeah, it is. It's slick. It makes it obvious. Aside from the fact you've got these phenomenally good-looking people, the characters and their motivations are designed as such that you can believe that they would end up being together after working together. Here, in, in the Swedish version, I think it's a little more faithful to the actual core of the beings of the people who are there. Both flawed, and if you think about the type of person that Lisbeth's original caseworker was, who ultimately has the stroke, you can see how she would find something more and something sexually desirable, something that is worth trusting in Blumkist. And that's the key to their relationship in the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Whereas it's just easier to believe because they're both hot and they're both good actors in the remake. Right. And comparing that relationship to the book, the movies really play it up. Whereas the books kind of more downplay it. Like they don't in the books, they don't really have a relationship proper between Elizabeth and Mikkel. 
Yeah, not not in the first book anyway. Like Elizabeth is a very she has people around her who care. That Arnoski, who runs the uh company that she works for, he very much concerned about her her old social worker. He was very concerned about her. But she also has no problem just being like, Yeah, fuck it, I'm out. Like she has and that is normally what she does. If you start caring about her too much, she's out. She doesn't have time for that. You know, she has very few people she cares for. Her mom in the nursing home. Which in the remake, she's dead. Her mom's dead in the remake. In the book, she dies. Her mom dies, but I can't remember when. Oh, really? Because I know she goes and visits her in the first or second movie. Okay, yeah. In the in the book, she visits her mom, but her mom confuses her with her twin sister, Camille? Camilla? Camilla. It's either Camille or Camilla. I can't remember off the top of my head. And that's some interesting story too. Her whole twin that kind of gets completely downplayed in the movies. But yeah, no, that relationship is is very different in the books. Whereas Elizabeth is just one of those girls. Like if you try to commit to her, she's gone. Plus there's what um, Bloomquist and Erica have, which is this weird, weird. It, and Erica works at the, at Millennium. Yeah, she's, she's Robin Wright was her. She's like the yeah, co-founder, and, right? I think they're they're like co-founders. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Her marriage is still together because she's with some artist guy, but she also says, "Well, I'm going, I'm going to Miguel's tonight to fuck him like that." And that's just that the way that relationship works. Whereas uh, Bloomquist's relationship did not uh, stand their weird long-term affair. I personally really like the Swedish versions because I think it gave a little bit more character depth. And I, again, I really don't know how much of this really falls into the books. But what I noticed in the first movie that I really liked character-wise, and I'm not just talking about between Lisbeth and Mikkel, but even Martin or in even the, the pig guardian. I'm going to call him the pig guardian because I can't think of his mm-hmm. actual name right now. But like even with the pig guardian, when she returns to his to his home, to his apartment, the second time to screw him over. In the remake, he welcomes her in and he lets her in. But even in the Swedish version, he's even like, no, come back another time. You have to make an appointment. He's still very much business-like with her, which I thought was very interesting. And then with Mikkel, what Daniel Craig does really well in the remake is that he expresses disappointment much better, I thought, than uh, Nyquist. Especially at the beginning of the movie, when he just looks defeated and kind of depressed. At least Daniel Craig plays it off as if he's taking on the job for Henrik, investigating his family, kind of out of desperation, but also to kind of like clear his mind from what all is actually going on. And that's what feeds his obsession with the case. But in the original movie... He shows up, he automatically tells him, no, I don't want lunch, I'm only, I'm gonna return home tonight... I just want to have this chat, uh, get this chat over with, and then he leaves. With Daniel Craig, he stays a while. He has dinner with them, and it's more drawn out with multiple scenes. Also, with the original Swedish movie, it plays around with, with various themes. They really play up the religious undertones, especially with Elizabeth, who can quote the scripture off the top of her head, which also adds to her photographic memory, I guess, that character building. And also the heavy anti-fascist and Nazi undertones as well. I thought the Swedish movie handled all that stuff really well. Now, in the books, Johnny, is Lisbeth religious at all? And no. do the books play up the anti-fascist and Nazi undertones? Yes, uh, uh, very much a lot. But it's weird because they play it up in all the uh, the Nazi stuff and all that stuff. It's not... It's not played up for shock value. It's very matter of factly put in the book. Like this is just part of life. And and I think the like the way it's written, it leads to me to believe, like in Sweden, like you throw the term Nazi around, like that's just a political party. Like it doesn't seem like it's quite got the same stigma it does here. But the original meeting between Wanger and Bloomquiz there is it's a very interesting situation because like he doesn't want to go in in the books like he he doesn't want to go he basically kind of gets talked into it with the carrot at the end of the stick being whatever 
uh, he has on Vanderstorm. The guy who totally, totally screwed Bloomquist over. Like that, like Bloomquist, uh, when he walks out of the, the court at the beginning, like that, that is a man who just got got. He got played. He knows he got played. He knows he lost, right? He knows that there was a story there, and, and that comes back to it later. But, yeah, it, it, really, it really just played out differently in the books that the, the reluctance of Bloomquist to start or even do anything because originally like the contract was like okay you do this for one year you make uh you know what is it 2.1 swedish kronar and if you don't find anything at the end of the year you go you know if you serve your sentence in the middle of that year so be it you just do that right and yeah the the guys was supposed to be you know the company family history and then uh with the the harriet thing as a side thing Getting back to what you were saying about the religious themes. The religious themes didn't really show up until Bloomquist's daughter showed up for a visit and said, hey, why do you have those scripture quotes on, on your wall, right? And then that's when they're like, oh, wait, this is scripture? And then that's when it really kind of took the scriptural meaning. And then when they start going into the history of Martin and what he's doing, why he does what he does, what his dad was like, you know, why Harriet left, like all of that. That's when you really start playing and like you start realizing like these are demented Christian Nazis. Picture all the bad parts of the Bible and all the bad parts of Nazi propaganda. Put that all into people. These are those people who killed several women all around Hedestat, picking the right ones to not. It wasn't that like uh, Bloomquist was the first one to put together that this was serial killings half of them weren't even reported as murders right you know what i mean yeah i kind of trailed off there <laughs> i'm I'm, try- I'm trying not to deal with too much at once you know what i mean yeah no because- no, no i mean it, it's a yeah. very it's a hefty if anything this goes to show that it's a very hefty story and these movies really add a lot to the discussion in closing to wrap up our part one discussion of the millennium saga a couple questions for both of you guys what did you think of Atticus Ross's and Trent Reznor's score for uh, the remake? Did it detract anything from the movie? Did it add to the movie? Who played the characters of Martin, Salander, and Bloomquist the best? And what did you think of the stylization of Fincher's remake? Did it take away? Did it add anything to the movie? Because part of the $90 million budget went towards a shit ton of effects uh, CGI, a lot of CGI and a lot of green screen was used to tie scenery together. Most of the cold and snowy locations were not even as cold and snowy as they were. In fact, most of the snow that's blowing on screen is CGI snow. And they added a lot of mats to make snow, like around the Vanger's home and property and whatnot. So a lot of that was simulated. So, yeah, I mean, what did you guys think? Go ahead, Johnny. Oh, yeah, that's a lot to unpack. Let's see if I can get this all. Uh, I'm going to start backwards. Did I like Fincher's movie? Yes. You know, I like Fincher's movies. I like his style. I like, you know, Fight Club is on any given day my favorite movie, even though people tell me apparently that makes me a Nazi. Don't ask. But <laughs> I, I like the way he cuts movies. I like, I like, um, I like the way he takes a story and tells it. Um, I think the reason I like the Swedish one's better, though. Um, I think, A, you're dealing with a, ki- uh, a time constraint. I think, like, if Fincher could make this, for whatever reason, a four- or five-hour movie, I think it would be even better um, just because of all the story beats that are in there that are interesting, but, but Fincher did hit all the essential plot points. The soundtrack, for me, when Reznor does a soundtrack to a movie, if I know it's him... I guaranteed have to watch that movie twice now because it does detract because I'm a huge Nine Inch Nails fan. I re- I really like the soundtrack, but I like I like Nine Inch Nails and I, and I like them enough that it will distract me personally from a movie. Who played the characters better? I think Daniel Craig played a better uh, Bloomquist, but Numi Rapace, I think is how you say it. Mm-hmm. I I liked her Lisbeth better. And it, it wasn't really that I thought anything was wrong with what was Rooney Mara. What was the other girl's name? Rooney Mara. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. 
I just, you know, two people did it and one has to be better and I like her. I also liked her when she came over and did uh, Prometheus as well. Numira Pace. Did I get it all? And Martin, the character of Martin. Martin, um, again, wh- when you read about him in the book, the guy who played him in the American one played him totally wrong. Like, the in, in, in real life, right? Like, if you're just dealing with this guy, he seems nervous and weird and withdrawn and, and almost scared of everything, you know? Like, he doesn't... He wasn't outwardly aggressive except for when he was beating up women. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, both of, I, I think uh, for some reason I'm, I'm having trouble placing the Swedish Martin right now, but I, I don't think I like, I don't like the way the American one was played in relation to the book. Right. If you look at the movie as a whole in and of itself, I think it worked because you didn't have as many scenes to build this character. So it didn't make as much sense to have this nervous, weird guy all of a sudden kicking ass, right? Sure. The one thing I want to say that I don't... Did it feel like to you guys the remake was supposed to be present day? And the reason I ask is, to me, this story is very time-sensitive, and I think that's a lot of the detail that they go into in the book. I like it more as a time capsule. I don't think I really like it as a a present-day story. Or am I the only one who thinks that, notices that? I, I did not notice that as much personally. Yeah, but I mean, especially if they're supposed to be born, the like if Harriet and them are supposed to be born in the fifties, and the bulk of the past takes place in the sixties. Yeah, I, I guess it does. I guess the present day stuff ha- do, they, it does have to take place at a specific time. But I think even in two thousand eleven, it's it still works. Maybe I guess what it is is uh they go into a lot of details about Lisbeth's hacking software. Yeah, like I mean, basically. Stig Larson unknowingly invented malware because it, it kind of was describing what malware is without without there really being mainstream malware yet. You know what I mean? That must have been all the stuff Fincher cut out. Oh, yeah. Like, there's, again, right? You know, some of it's like, is this important to the story right. or is this just details I like because I'm fascinated with these characters? Matt. Yo. Your final thoughts. Let's see, uh, the score, honestly, the score was just fine in the Swedish one. I don't have anything uh, against Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor, or anything like that. That was all fine, but again, I think that just goes to the, you know, has to be American slick, we gotta put that Hollywood veneer on it. Um, I think it worked, it was fine, but I don't really have, you know... No preference, I guess. Yeah, no real preference there. In terms of... The characters who did them better, I kind of like uh, Nickvis's version of Blumkist mm-hmm. better, but I actually like Runa Mara's Lisbeth better. I don't know for for me, I th- just she just felt more natural at it. And again, nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with Numi Rapace's version, but much like Johnny, you know, if you're gonna pick one. That's that's that is where I fall. Other than that, um, definitely glad that we're doing this wonderful little experiment and uh, with this specific trilogy, you know, bringing us back to the beginning, <laughs> to the roots, as we plant seeds of something new. The roots. I'm just very happy to be here because I'm I'm enthralled with this story, and. I get to finally talk to people about it because I'm alone. I don't even have the books <laughs> Did you right see now because you're because alone. It, well, because <laughs> you're stuck in the secluded Swedish cabin and you can't go outside because of the fear of wolves eating you. Well, I do live in Canada, <laughs> um, so that's a thing. Actually, I don't I don't even have the books right now because like with all my favorite books, I try and lend them out as much as possible to spread the word. But yeah, no, I've realized like I love this story and I used to have a lot of stuff. Now I'm I'm actually like searching Amazon to find all the good physical goods I used to have because I. I mean, physical, who the hell does that in these days? But anyway, what I'm trying to say is thank you very much for having me on this show as part of this experiment. Of course. This is Jake Burris asking you to come back next week for the conclusion of Stig Larson's Millennium Trilogy and Beyond Discussion covering The Girl Who Played With Fire and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. 
We'll also touch on the two Elizabeth Solander novels not written by Larson, The Girl in the Spider's Web and The Girl Who Takes an Eye for an Eye, and Sony Pictures' upcoming reboot with the first adaptation of The Girl in the Spider's Web. We hope you tune in. Shaving Mirror and Hustle are the tracks featured on the program and are brought to you by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.com. The guest for our inaugural episode, again, was Johnny White Trash. And you can find him over at JohnnyWhiteTrash.com and on Twitter at White Trash Show. Since Errors of Continuity is a podcast presented by the SLS Cast, you can find our show over at slscast.com, on Twitter at the SLS Cast, and you can always follow Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345, and me, Tim, on Twitter, if you can find me. So take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. <laughs>